welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and a CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, I'm covering the news to know for the week of November 18th. So let's get to it. First article comes out of EHR Intelligence. The title here is How to Design a Comprehensive EHR Usability Assessment. And I'll read you a couple of lines from this and we'll talk a little bit about usability. So conducting an EHR usability assessment post-implementation can help healthcare organizations quantify the efficiency and effectiveness of their EHR technology develop workflows that meet their specific needs, and pinpoint opportunities for improving user satisfaction. So what is EHR usability? The usability of a particular system can be assessed by identifying how well it meets criteria in nine key categories. First one, simplicity. A simply designed EHR interface does not include information or visual elements that are unnecessary for completing administrative or clinical tasks. Simple interfaces reduce the likelihood physicians will be overwhelmed by the amount of data appearing on their screens. EHR systems designed with simplicity in mind also highlight important information using visual cues and include navigation options that are easy to understand. Highlighting key information helps providers find relevant data more quickly. The design of the interface itself is clear, clean, and uncluttered. And I'll just stop here to comment on this part because we frequently fail in this area. Some of it's the EHR vendor's fault and some of it's our own. I'll give you an example. How many possible choices are there in your general admission order set? Are you limiting the options to just what a provider is likely to need for a simple admission or do you list every possible order under the sun so a provider could do any admission that they want from that tool? When selecting the type of bed that you're going to be admitting a patient to, do you list all the departments in the hospital or are you limiting the choices to just those that make sense for that specialty? Because I know my cardiologists are not admitting to the labor and delivery department. So why do we show that as an option? Well, the answer is because it's easier for IT. They only want to maintain one admission screen. That's one, whether it's a... uh, record of some kind and they don't want to have one for each specialty because the maintenance on that's hard so this is a very difficult philosophical decision that you have to make with your near system and it likely is going to vary on how much bang for the buck you get out of that piece of customization most it shops are going to be preferring if you reduce the maintenance tasks that they have to do and most providers are going to want you to reduce their cognitive burden and that's because when we were taught to take multiple choice tests we were said we were told to read all the answers first and then select the best one. I think our minds still work that way. And until we develop that muscle memory where we know exactly where that mouse needs to go until someone rearranges the interface, I would know just where the buttons are that I need. So reducing the number of choices will reduce the cognitive burden, help you identify where you need to go and making the right choice easier. I'm not going to go into much detail on all these, but I'll read you a couple others. Naturalness is the next one, and that's that the interfaces uh, should be intuitive, easy to learn, to limit the burden of training. One of my guests, Dr. Topol, had commented that he was disgusted that he had to go through 24 hours of EHR training before he was allowed to use the system. 
And he's, he's right. It's kind of uh, harsh that we have to put so much time that the systems are not intuitive that we can just plug and play. Next one is consistency. I think we're pretty good at this one, which is that throughout the EHR, you want to have the same look, same feel, same terminology. You want to have that continuity so that reduces confusion. I think we're pretty good on that one. Uh, forgiveness and feedback. So data entry errors happen if providers make a mistake within the system. Our forgiving application allows users to recover from errors easily. I think many systems missed the mark on this one. Also, this one is about error prevention. Why do we allow someone to check a box that says no significant arrhythmia when the chief complaint is rapid AFib? We could build in the logic that if one choice is selected, then the other choice is not available, but it does require work. And I don't think we do enough of that. Uh, they go on to say effective use of language. So you want to uh, use the words that the clinicians are using in practice in a way that they're going to quickly and easily recognize things in lists and in entry forms. Uh, efficient interactions. An EHR system that enables efficient interactions is designed to minimize the number of clicks or steps required to complete the task. Navigation methods minimize the need for user movements, including scrolling and switching between typing and clicking the mouse to streamline EHR use for clinicians. All right, brace yourself for a rant, because here I go. There is a certain EHR vendor that will remain anonymous to protect the guilty that released a form into production that is used to help document some cardiac procedures. And what came out of the box from the vendor violates so many usability principles, and particularly this one, though, about efficient interactions. To document the resting state of an exercise stress test, I click to open the section. I click on my choice, I click again to close the section, so now I can move on to the next one. My first click to open the section causes this pop-up to appear that covers the other sections. So I have no choice but to perform an extra click now to close it. So I quit trying to use this tool for documentation after 50 clicks, and I wasn't even close to finishing the report. So I just told my docs, hey, just forget this form, use Dragon. It's going to be far easier, but shame on anonymous large EHR vendor for releasing such a tool into the wild without having a usability team look at it first. There's no way that anyone with even entry level usability skills would have let this go out to a customer. Okay, my rant is over. I'll now return you to your normal programming. Uh, let's see. The next one here is the effective uh, presentation of information. So you want to be able to highlight abnormal values. We do pretty good that preservation of continuity. The EHR said uh, minimize screen changes and visual interruptions while providers are completing tasks, allowing users to focus on the content of the workflow rather than having to reacclimate to a new environment after every action. I think we're pretty good with this one. Try not to have our users bouncing back and forth between different screens too often. Certainly has gotten a lot better. I've seen more data being pulled together right where you need it so you don't have to go looking in different parts of the chart to get it. The last one I think is really important, which is to minimize the cognitive load. To minimize cognitive load, EHR data should be cohesively organized according to task without requiring users to access multiple screens simultaneously. EHR alerts should be concise, informative, and appropriate. Ensuring EHR alerts are only used in high-impact situations helps to reduce the likelihood of EHR alert fatigue which can pose a threat to patient safety in some cases. 
A consumer-friendly EHR system also performs calculations automatically for providers to reduce cognitive load and prevent human error. And this one drives users nuts. Asking us to fill in fields that we know already exist in the EHR is a waste of time. Don't ask me to answer the BMI. The EHR already knows the BMI, but sometimes we do. So this article continues with a discussion about how to do usability testing. That's really beyond what most of us have time to do or the resources to do. Tools that count the clicks, measure the scrolling, measuring mouse movement, tracking eye movement, and then surveying end users for assessments after completing a task. It's certainly possible to do it, but it's often not practical to do this across your entire organization for every application. I do recommend though, instilling some of these concepts of usability across your IT application teams. I think that's something that we can do. There are short courses on this topic. You can get your teams to take and watch these things and up their game so that they hopefully violate less of these principles. So that's the first article. Next one. This one you probably heard about. The AMA study shows poor EHR usability leads to physician burnout. And this was by Christopher Jason. This one's also coming out of EHR Intelligence, but you probably saw it in a variety of news sources, uh, November 15th, 2019. High volumes of data entry and poor usability associated with EHRs are a main cause of physician burnout, according to a study completed in partnership between the AMA. I think Mayo Clinic was in this one as well. Here's a quote. A new study issued today found electronic medical records as currently designed, implemented, and regulated lack usability as a necessary feature, resulting in EHRs that are extremely hard to use compared to other common technologies, said AMA President Patrice Harris. So what did this study look at? They had a survey of over 5,000 physician EHR users. The researchers found that EHR usability largely received an F rating when evaluating a standard metric of technology usability, and those F grades were strongly tied to high physician burnout scores. Conversely, the researchers observed a significantly lessened likelihood for physician burnout when EHRs were more usable. With each one percentage point increase in EHR usability scores, the researchers observed a 3% lower odds of physician burnout. In other words, the easier it is for the EHR to use, the less likely the physician will experience burnout symptoms. So this one made a lot of press. I think we know this, we feel this, we, we understand this as CMIOs. We always have a difficult time communicating it and putting a dollar amount behind it to get the resources we need to try to combat it. The This article does not do that. It does connect EHR to burnout and we can connect burnout to dollars so we're making some leaps here, but we do uh, believe that the EHR is part of burnout. I don't believe it's the number one part here. And there's an article in HIS Talk. That, so one of the things that the, the person who's writing the critique here says, perceived EHR usability was compared to everyday items such as Microsoft Excel, which also received an F, an ATM machine, a microwave oven. So it's not quite, it's kind of, a, in my opinion, a slightly unusual scale to be using. They uh, also said here, I'm not clear on how the authors expected respondents to answer usability questions about, quote, my EHR, end quote, which would depend upon their practice, one or more clinics, they have one or more hospitals, or both. 
The authors did mention an incentivized secondary survey, which may suggest that they paid people to complete it. Note that responses may have been conflating EHR usability with the burden of documentation it supports, with their pushback being against documentation requirements rather than the tool that captures it. I think that does happen a lot. And a reader says that while one of the authors is an executive of a notoriously EHR hating AMA, its own AMA wouldn't its own uh, JAMA would not publish the findings, and it ended up in Mayo Clinic proceedings, probably because of the low response rate. So I, I don't know that you can hang your hat on this one and say, yup, the, the nail's in the coffin. We know for sure that burnout's caused by the EHR. I think that's still open for debate. I believe it certainly plays a role, though. I think we all do. Do you want to read you just one more Paragraph here, different article out of uh, HIS Talk. And this one is uh, the Wall Street Journal profiles the technology underpinnings of the new 2.1 billion, 368 bed Stanford Hospital that opened this weekend. It was originally scheduled to be open early 2018, but was delayed because Apple's spaceship headquarters project sucked up all the Silicon Valley steel workers. I was curious about Stanford's financials, which show $4 billion in annual revenue, a profit of nearly $450 million, several executives in the $1 to $2 million range, and IT compensation, listen to this, the CMIO was paid $770,000 a year, while the CIO made $500,000 a year. Hospital features include bedside keypads that allow patients to choose entertainment, control temperature, lighting, and window blinds. Swiss log robotic dispensing for pharmacy and medication delivery by robots. A fleet of automated guide vehicles for delivering laundry and collecting trash. Tracking of staff and inventory in real time and remote patient monitoring. I thought that was an interesting article. I think some of the automation that they're doing, this is the hospital of the future type thing. I think that's great. Uh, you've got these little trash robots running around, which makes me think of Star Wars where they had that little trash robot that Chewbacca yells at and it goes running off into the corridor. I really thought it was interesting that the CMIO is paid more than the CIO because I don't normally hear that. I'm going to not comment at all on the, the salary number as to whether that's higher or lower than what I typically hear. It's just an interesting number. All right, let's jump on to the next topic. This one out of Healthcare IT News by Bill Sawicki, November 15th, Technology Optimization, Refining Clinical Decision Support. It's a fairly long article about how to do clinical decision support right. And to be honest with you, most of this is written for someone other than the CMIO because we know all these, these things that they're talking about. I'll highlight one or two that I thought were interesting, but they things, say things like, number one, Find out from your end users what they want for clinical decision support. Well, yeah, we kind of got that. That's easy. Uh, do not interrupt clinicians when they're coming up with um, important clinical diagnoses. That makes sense. But some of these were more interesting. And so one of these here is identifying the value of clinical decision support. So one of the things they consider the best practice is the value of clinical decision support can be measured in terms of positive predictive value, which describes the relevance of decision support versus its irrelevance. And this one, was that's a quote from Aslan Brook from Zinc's Health. 
Here's another quote. Studies have shown that feeding additional inputs such as lab values to an advanced decision support engine has increased positive predictive value by a factor of three. Ultimately, alert fatigue decreases and clinicians are more likely to respond because patient-specific data demonstrates that a risk is more likely to be present. A single approach to clinical decision support is unlikely to catch all of one's clinician's practice patterns and therefore achieve less than an optimal health outcome. Find a platform to analyze one's clinical decision support configuration, utilization, and performance is critical to success. And I think that's spot on. I don't think we do a lot of that. We barely have enough resources to develop the clinical decision support tool, but being able to have a dashboard that's gonna monitor the effectiveness, the response rate, when you tweak something, do you see it get better, get worse? It's a lot of ad hoc, gee, we're gonna tweak this and we hope it gets better for people. Maybe we'll look at it again in another few months. There are tools out there, and we had talked about one months ago by Mark Tobias, he had a tool that was helping with clinical decision support and tracking those alerts over time. Some of these tools are really becoming more essential for us to have and not really optional. I, I wish our IT departments put more emphasis on the importance of tracking the clinical decision support that we, that we put out there and making sure we're following up on it and having the resources available to us to help us review this content on some regular basis. All right, next one is Penn. This is also out of Healthcare IT News by John Donahue, also November 15th. Penn Medicine's tips for managing and integrating technology after healthcare acquisitions. So my organization is going through this right now. We're about to take over another hospital. We're starting to plan the technology piece of that. It's really interesting. If you haven't had a chance to participate in a process like this, it's really exciting to do as well as challenging. So Penn has the what they call the three C's approach to managing information services, and it means common systems, centrally managed, and collaboratively implemented. So when you acquire a new hospital or a large practice, it's important to begin to articulate this approach early and often. We typically work collaboratively with the new organization to help them see the rationale behind this approach and the associated financial and operational benefits. We publish a formal benefits realization white paper every two years, and this report really helps us articulate tangible results. The first thing that we typically do is connect the organization from an infrastructure perspective. This begins to perform uh, provide insight as to what vendors they're using and how their infrastructure and IS security is handled. As we start to mature the relationship, we typically develop a side-by-side -side look at the technology platforms. We overlay technology roadmaps to demonstrate commonality. This process begins to provide a visual that we use to look for prioritization and expectation setting in terms of saving opportunities. We typically craft a multi-year plan that identifies the opportunities with a goal being completely supported on common systems as the final outcome. And just to comment on that, you will see organizations that struggle with this. And how can you spot them? Ask them what data visualization tool they use for their reporting needs. And when they say all of them, you know you found an organization that is struggling with post-acquisition planning or the target that they acquired has a very resistant culture and doesn't want to give up their tools, feeling a lack of identity if they do give up their tools and that loss of 
this is what makes us unique kind of feeling. So it definitely is culture, and that's a big part of this article. Saying that culture will absolutely crush your plans on this if you don't understand the culture of the organization you're, you're picking up here. They go on to say that developing and maintaining evolving enterprise standards requires diligence and a commitment to the process. We found that having very good architects are key to this process. We have developed an architect job family and development program. We have matured several of our best engineers. They then created an architectural review board and a stringent change control process. And that's the reason why they've been able to establish solid infrastructure resiliency and dramatically reduce enterprise outages. I think that's really interesting that they have a governance process around this. You will see organizations out there that have a thousand plus different or, or sometimes the same uh, overlapping applications out there. As CMIOs, we can help spot these and say which one's best in practice. How many call scheduling tools do you have in your system? I bet if you have more than five hospitals, you have more than five on-call scheduling tools. And you'll find as you pick up just little groups here and there in the medical group that they come with their own on-call tools. Typically, on some of these one-off applications where you end up, and I see a lot of this in analytics, the analytic packages. As you acquire companies, you're acquiring their analytic tools that they have, and you'll end up with every different brand that's on the market. Let's do one last article. And this one, this one's going to ring true with you. It's supposed that acute providers often lack budget to implement critical health IT. Also out of Healthcare IT News by Nathan Eddy, November 15th. Almost one in five post-acute facilities have been operating at negative margins for the past five years or longer. This was a black book survey of roughly 1,600 providers of long-term and post-acute care. 84% of post-acute administrators reported having no budgeted funds for technology acquisitions or improvements in 2019. While HIEs, both public and private, health analytics, workflow, care coordination, and patient engagement systems could improve post-acute care, slow adoption rates and fragmented health IT environments are hampering progress. Just under half of all post-acute providers surveyed said their state said that the state of their staff's health information technology proficiency is either extremely poor or non-existent, and just 4% of inpatient long-term care providers said they had data-driven analytic capabilities. Here's a quote from, uh, this was someone from the Black Book Research who did the survey, I guess. Um, Simplifying connectivity between hospital and post-acute care system generates enormous opportunities for cost reduction, reduced patient transfer workloads, and overall improvements in care. I'm not sure how involved the rest of you are with Pop Health. It takes up a good chunk of my time. And we have very little visibility into post-acute care. And yet, when you take on risk, when you are doing these value-based contracts, Post-acute care matters. It matters a lot. There's some big expenses that can happen in there. And you definitely want to have a feel and a handle on what's going on and how you can reduce readmissions, how you can reduce the, the patients who get sent to the emergency room where it's a mild urinary tract infection and they end up spending five, six hours and get transported back. And end-of-life care discussions that can happen. All those things can happen if there's good communication between facilities. 
and I just don't see it very often. It seems to be an area that that is neglected. And so that's going to be the news for this week. I appreciate you listening. You've been listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Some of your ideas for shows, guests you would like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. I look forward to bringing you our next episode. Thank you.